The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It is 8 minutes after 10 a.m. You're listening to The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for joining us. Really, really do appreciate your the honor of your company. It really is a privilege. Uh, in this hour, we're going to be talking about something that was in the headlines last week, but we haven't quite made much sense of it. South Africa has been graylisted by the FATF, which is a global organization, the Financial Action Task Force. What this means is that the country is now under increased in, in the gray zone or the gray list. Is, we're not yet in the doldrums, but we're in that section where there's increased monitoring against actions against money laundering, terrorist financing, proliferation financing, um, just terrible illicit uh, actions involving money. What does this mean? Should we be worried? How do we get out of it? What implications does it have for financial systems in the country, for financial integrity? And perhaps even, does it at any point trickle down onto consumers? Does it mean anything to you at all? How do we get out of this? Those are some of the questions I have in mind. I'm joined by Kaya Sitole. Uh, he is a chartered accountant as well as a commentator. I'm also joined by Olueti Machola who is an attorney specializing in transactional organized crime and financial crimes. Kaya, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really do appreciate it. Oluetu, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really, really do appreciate it. Oluetu, I'll start here. Maybe let's start with definitions, right? Because uh, these things actually does matter. What does, it, what, what does money laundering mean in law, especially at an international level? What does terrorist financing look like in law? Um and does it mean the same as how we speak about it in, in layman's terms? Um, hi, Oliver. Thank you so much for inviting me um, to discuss this very important issue. So um, when we talk about money laundering, we talk about the proceeds of crime that are converted um, through the financial systems um, within a country. And this could either be within the national or domestic systems or through the use of international banking systems to integrate those um, proceeds into uh, those systems and disguising them as legitimate gain. So I'm not quite sure if I'm that, using that, that's... Uh, academic language. I'm <laughs> if I'm too uh, academic, you'll just let me know. No, that's very clear. It makes a lot of sense. Do you mind giving us an example of what that looks like? Um, an example of that would be somebody who, for example, receives a bribe of 50,000 rands and somehow makes a cash deposit into the account, um, maybe claiming that it's money uh, that was invoiced through a business deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with so they wouldn't want to necessarily use that money. Um, outside of the financial system. So then they would be able to use those illicit proceeds in the purchasing of legitimate mm. items like cars or houses, etc. So what is the Financial Action Task Force telling us about the proliferation of money laundering and terrorist financing and illicit financial flows in South Africa? They're basically telling us that the actions that we are currently taking do not match with the risk profile of the country. Um, so they're basically telling us that the actions we're taking do not match the potential um, illicit 
financial activity that is actually happening in the country, meaning we are probably not detecting as many of those transactions as we should. And in cases that we are, we're not taking the appropriate actions through sanctions or prosecutions mm, and mm. the relevant investigations. Mm. Do we do we have the infrastructure for detection and sufficient prosecution? I believe we do. If we speak of the legislation, the policy, um, mm. and the institutions themselves, they are all there. Um, now it becomes a question of what's going on inside those institutions. Do we have enough skills and capacity to actually identify um, these these incidents when they happen? Um, are these institutions working together? Because not one institution will be able to fulfill the mandate. Each institution has its role to play. It's almost like a chain. So, mm. for example, the law enforcement um, agencies would pick up, for example, on potential illicit activities or the banks would pick up and report it to law enforcement. And then the National Prosecuting Authority would then have to follow up with investigations. So it's it's a very delicate thread that needs to function mm, optimally mm, for this to happen. Mm. It sounds technical and complicated, right? To be able to make a case, a prosecutable case for money laundering, you have to understand it at a forensics level. Does the NPA have the requisite forensics capabilities amongst its lawyers? Um, this is what I do not know, as I'm not uh, privy to what is going on inside the yeah. NPA. And I think we also have had issues of lack of transparency. So we currently do not know what the challenges are. Um, but if I were to point out um, any loopholes in our system, I would say law enforcement and the NPA. Um, certainly, yeah, there are some challenges there, but we mm. don't know exactly what those are. Mm -hmm. uh, as a researcher, do you find them forthcoming with data? Um, I haven't. <laughs> okay, unfortunately, I have done work in other capacities and I'm not um, privileged to yeah. disclose certain things. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really say whether they are forthcoming. But in terms yeah. of saying um, disclosures to the media and the general public, we don't know much at yeah. all. Yeah. Kai, I want to bring you in here. This, <laughs> You make the case this was preventable. Last week, you and I were at an event. We were in a conversation. And Minister Monli Kungubela was a part of this conversation amongst other people. You gave him a tongue lashing of note saying that, they ignored expert advice and didn't want to bring skilled people into the fold to set up the framework to prevent this. You, in fact, asked him, where are the CAs? So I want to ask you, how did we get here? Good morning. Good morning to the listeners. So obviously, I think the way we got here is that there has been a gradual deterioration in the capacity of our state institutions to deal with the proliferation of really dodgy financial transactions. And why this was a gradual process is that if you think, for example, about when South Africa joined the FATF, this was at the turn of the century, around 2000 and 2001. 
And when you join this particular organization, they obviously give you a very clear, uh, you know, a picture of what they think the risks are associated with international terrorist financing, for example, and what countries need to do in order to address that. But also quite importantly, this was just months ahead of the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York City. And when that happened, it actually created a sense of urgency across the globe for all the countries that said they wanted to be part of this, for them to reform their systems and ensure that they were up to date and they were not going to be used as, you know, fertile ground for terrorist financing activities. So the processes that we undertook in order to join the FATF were fit for purpose back then. Since then, there's obviously been an evolution in the way these issues work, in the way money laundering has become ever more sophisticated and terrorist financing has deepened its tentacles across the globe. What unfortunately has happened is that South Africa's systems haven't really kept up to date. So if you look, for example, the easiest example that we use now is the rise of these cryptocurrencies and these alternative currencies. And what seems to be a big selling point of these alternative currencies is the lack of traceability, which means that anyone can transact from anywhere in the globe and it's not always easy to figure out who you're transacting with. So obviously that is a wonderful opportunity for those that want to conduct transactions that are untraceable. So for any country that then wants to remain up to speed, you then have to reform your own regulatory processes, reform your own institutions so that they're able to pick up how these these flows work. I don't even want to call them cash flows. How these flows of cryptocurrencies work so that you do not find yourself exposed to being manipulated by criminal agents. And that seems to be the crux of the problem. So South Africa's inability to keep up with the evolution in the way the criminal enterprises are working meant that we were always at risk of being found out should an evaluation be undertaken. Unfortunately, from 2019 onwards, we were subjected to an evaluation process and that evaluation process came back and said, look, when it comes to every single red flag that you can think of, South Africa has it. So it was really a damning report that said, guys, your systems are completely ill-fit and unsuited for the purposes of what you're trying to combat. Mm -hmm. Which institutions are implicated here, Kaya? So it is it, 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 it is quite a cross-section of institutions. So you have institutions that deal specifically with financial regulation. You have institutions that deal specifically with the movement of cash within a country's system. Then you've got the law enforcement agencies, which are then supposed to act on the reports or the red flags that then get raised by these institutions. And comprehensively, South Africa's institutions either aren't as coordinated as they need to be, or they're individually and collectively just unfit for purpose. So if you remember seven years ago, there was one classic case study that actually told us where we're going to end up. And this was a case study of a politically exposed person who happened to be a deputy commissioner at SARS. So the reason it matters that you refer to him as a politically exposed person is that that's also part of the process that is required in order for us to keep tracking and identifying um, transactions and things that shouldn't be happening. So once a person is classified as a politically exposed person, you expect that there's a greater level of scrutiny around what happens in their bank account. Who classifies somebody as politically exposed? So there is another process that is run quite separately from this one that looks at individuals and the roles they occupy in the state. And if, for example, you're a director general, the consensus is that you're a person who is likely to be seen as a target for criminal agents, for bribes and, and other inducements. So because you are at that particular risk, you are right. then regarded as a politically exposed person. 
So essentially, everyone who's a senior person in government falls within that particular category. And everyone who is as senior as Mr. Makwakwa was at SARS would definitely be classified as a politically exposed person. So you had this politically exposed person who then had cash being deposited into his um, into his bank accounts beyond the confines of what his salary and his re- uh, income from SARS was. And after a series of transactions amounting to close to 800,000 rand, the Financial Intelligence Center then raised a red flag to say, look, we have particular concerns about how this politically exposed person is actually receiving cash into his bank account that is sim- that seems to be beyond what we understand his job to be. So at that point in time, you'd have imagined that the FIC had done its job and then it passed the matter on to the prosecution agencies, in this case, the Hawks. And since then, seven years later, the Hawks have forgotten to contact this man and ask him, well, exactly, can you explain what's happening here? <laughs> so the reason that matters is that obviously, in this particular case, the Financial Intelligence Center did its job. It said, we've got a problem here. We need this person to explain the source of this fund. But we do not have the authority to hold him in and ask him those questions. Yeah. Here's a case file. Please go and follow up on it. And had that follow up been done, then you would have been able to argue that, look, there is some coordination between those that are working on tracking the, the cash flows and those that then have to test whether there is a legal case to be explored in relation to in, in, instances of that nature. Yeah. So the fact that we couldn't even get that done simply means that the coordination that is required in order for the system to be seen to be able to deal with issues of illicit financial flows and money laundering, which do not have that. So yeah. it was inevitable so, that yeah. in a comprehensive evaluation was to, to be done, we we're going to be found wanting. Mm-hmm. So, so some of the vulnerabilities are in, in 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 lack of coordination as far as financial intelligence and law enforcement is concerned. Financial financial regulatory institutions being the FIC, right? Uh, being the Financial Intelligence Center, being I don't know, does the FSCA fall there, Kaya? Um, does is that where the reserve is that the ambit of where the Reserve Bank falls? Is that the ambit where SARS falls? And on the other hand, you have the SIU, you have the Hawks, and you have the police and the NPA. Those two sets of institutions don't speak to each other. You're saying so. What is the solution? Do you well, they're, su- they're supposed to, but it doesn't look like they're doing it. So, what is the solution here? Do you give the FIC the powers that the Hawks have but didn't act on? That's to say, do you give the FIC subpoena powers? Well, the, every country has got the the opportunity to decide how it wants to deal with these issues. So, in the South African context, you can decide that. Once the FIC has a case of its nature, these are the additional steps they're allowed to undertake in order to get the case closer to conclusion if they don't have prosecutorial powers. And that was exactly the point that was um, raised in that as a country, you are the one that decides which laws you want to put in place, but comprehensively, these laws must achieve this particular outcome. So you should be able to say that these are the institutions we put together. These are the rules of engagement across these institutions, and this is how this addresses the issues of a race. So no one is going to prescribe to you as a country who should talk to what and how you should create agencies and how you should structure your law enforcement issues. The assessment seems to be collectively, are your institutions able to coordinate their efforts in order to combat money laundering? Who is at the center of this coordinating value chain? Is it National Treasury? I would say the state, uh, the government, because you can imagine that National Treasury has oversight over a few number of institutions. So they would obviously have primary oversight over the flow of money and the flow of funds within the country. But when it comes to the question of holding people accountable, 
when it comes to the question of law enforcement, then you obviously are no longer within the ambit of national treasury. You then have to look at what the other agencies of the state are empowered to do in order to follow up on this. What is What are the NPA's powers and what has it done with those powers? What is its coordination protocol with the national treasury's agents in relation to combating this? Yeah particular issues so i wouldn't say that there's a one-stop shop at national treasury because they will argue that look their powers are limited by what they oversee and what they influence and they do not necessarily have the power to call the police for example and say go and speak to that particular person because you saw a deposit that we think cannot be explained yeah yeah all right so it's seldom that um big money laundering or terrorist financing cases rises to the top of news media in comprehensible ways right um, for instance, the last big case study I can think of that was a major scandal was the Lafarge CEO here in South Africa selling cement to ISIS uh, <laughs> when when there was a global order not to do so, directly enabling terrorist activities uh, to go ahead. Are those the instances in the majority we're speaking about or is it Palapala in the majority? Um, in terms of the cases that you get to hear about, yeah, and just the sort of cases that make us vulnerable altogether. Okay. Um, yeah, I think the cases that make us vulnerable are the ones we are unable to detect. So the ones that we get to see in the media, yes. Um, I, I suppose it's one or two a year that we get a lot of attention. But we are at risk of um, much smaller or undetectable transactions. And Kaya mentioned the virtual currencies. Um, we also currently have um, these virtual money transfer agencies um, that we're also battling to regulate in the country that um, transfer money within the region. Um, so a lot of those go undetected. Um, I know we definitely have a very good framework for our banking and financial, um, formal financial systems, but we have an informal financial market mm. as well that um, is going uh, unregulated for the most part. Mm. Why is South Africa a special case? I don't assume cryptocurrencies makes us any more vulnerable than it does the biggest economies in the world, like the United States, for instance. Uh, cryptocurrencies has made financial regulatory systems across the world vulnerable, has it not? Yes, it has. Um, but if you are talking about uh, vulnerabilities outside of those kinds of um, uh, currencies, then you would be speaking of, for example, the terrorist financing threat, yeah. which is definitely uh, one of the issues that were raised um, in the report. Um, and then there is a contextual background to that with South Africa's liberation um, history, where there was a reluctance to actually deal with terrorism and to label certain groups and individuals as terrorists. And mm. then we find ourselves um, in this position where we have this vulnerability. Um, yeah, I think it's basically the context behind uh, our environment and what actually goes on and what we are actually not picking up on at the moment. Mm -hmm. and we're not What we're not sensitive to and the possibilities that we could be exploited mm -hmm. for. Kaya, does this mean, as one of my listeners just put it now on uh, WhatsApp, that South Africa is the world's washing machine? <laughs> we do not know. I do believe there are countries that are in an even much worse position. But of course, the whole point is that you shouldn't even be mentioned in a 
conversation about states where people think, you know, it's much easier to commit this crime. So it's unfortunate that we're there, but, but I do not believe that we are the worst because there are other jurisdictions where the stories you hear are even more chilling than we hear about South Africa. Where is state intelligence? Yes. Um, so we do know that they now report to the minister and the presidency, who is the <laughs> gentleman you referred to earlier on. Yeah. So I don't think I don't know if that advances the conversation. Look, yeah, you would imagine that in a country like ours, where we've seen the limitations and the failures of state agency to sort of be proactive in monitoring what happens within the borders of the country, it is inevitable that they would miss even such sophisticated crimes because if they cannot track the crimes that you see on the ground you can imagine how complicated it is for them to tackle these ones so i unfortunately do not believe that they have the they currently have the capacity to take the lead in this conversation mm-hmm. what implications does this at all if any have for you and i as banking consumers as people that rely on the financial system well, the irony is that every single person who's part of the banking system knew this was inevitable. So last uh, Friday's announcement was unsurprising to anyone, yeah. which simply means that whatever consequences are associated with the blacklisting have been factored in. So if banks have figured out that, look, maybe we need to be a bit more vigilant in monitoring um, Oliver's account, then they're already doing it, even if they're not telling you. So you're not going to see any immediate changes or any immediate impact for you at the consumer level. At the, ma- at the macro level for the state and for state-owned enterprises, the impacts may be a bit more different because obviously the grade listing does come with consequences where some counterparties will shy away from continuing conversations or even initiating conversations with those particular organizations. So they'll have a much more immediate impact. But for us as citizens, it's a bit of a long-term what is, game, what is, what is that, particularly if we do not get on. What does that mean? If ESCOM goes to JP Morgan Chase, hypothetically, and says, hey, c- can we borrow some money from you? JP Morgan Chase will be like, ah, oh, we're a bit nervous about doing business with you. Yeah, of course, because then like, you are from a country where your state cannot explain what happens within the money flows within your borders. So we are concerned about the integrity of your financial systems. And for as long as that concern exists, instead of charging you 10% interest for that particular transaction, we're going to charge you 12 or 15% oh, wow. simply to cover ourselves for the additional risk associated with transacting with you. Yeah, give us a call. 86 2032 2032. Uh, I'd like for you to be a part of this conversation. I'm also taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104107. Tweet me at Oliver underscore speaking. It's 10.30. Kamukhele Taledi has your headlines. We continue the conversation. South Africa has been graylisted by the Financial Action Task Force. President Ramaphosa says this will have no implication on the cost of doing business. Before we went to the break, Kaya said, well, if ESCOM hypothetically were to borrow money from an international lending institution, hypothetically, let's say an, an American bank, such as J.P. Morgan Chase, that they would they might get the loan, but to cover the extra risk uh, due to the integrity, to the questions about the integrity of our financial system, instead of getting a hypothetically ten percent uh, interest on it, J.P. Morgan Chase might slap on an, a, an additional two to five percent just to cover uh, themselves for that risk. Uh, yeah, Kaya, who's lying? You or the president? Kaya. <laughs> Pick a struggle, brother. <laughs> Pick a struggle. Who, who is it? Is, is the president disillusioned? He has to sell us the idea that all is well in spite of the evidence in front of us. That's his job. Uh, mine is not the same.
Yeah, give us a call, 086-000-2032. That's the number to dial. I'm in conversation with Kasi Tole, who is a chartered account as well as a broadcaster. I'm also in conversation with Olwe Tumachola. She is an attorney specializing in uh, organized transactional crime as well as financial crime. So the, the big question then is, what is to be done now by the state? Coordination is part of the problem. Vulnerability in institutions, lack of political action and political will may also be a part of the problem. What do we do now? And a a response task team has to be put together. And true Ramaphosa style, there'll be millions of consultations before any sort of action is taken. But in those consultations, what's the advice that they need to listen to and what should they do from that? If you could speak to the president right now, what would be three things you told him about what immediately needs to be done? Um, so I would advise the president to engage with FATF, um as soon as possible. Um, I was a bit curious to find out on the points that were raised, um, what the weighting would be on each of those. Because yeah. realistically speaking, two years is not a long time. And a lot of these, as we've described, are very substantial institutional processes that need to be remedied. And those cannot be done within two years. Um, it's even difficult to get a case um, investigated mm, mm. and concluded within two years, let alone now we're speaking about asset recovery. Um, that's also a process on its own that can take two to three years. Um, so I would say to the president that he needs to engage with better and um, find out what are the most pertinent issues that need to be addressed um, that could get us off the gray list as soon as possible. So that would mm. mean prioritizing the most important concerns. Um, and then also just to be realistic about, again, the um, support that we can receive from FATF and Assembleg, because these are international institutions and South Africa is not going to take priority because they have been grey listed. Um, so we'll probably have to join the queue. And um, in, with that reality, we'll have to think outside of the box in terms of how we mobilize um, external support. Uh, for example, we would need to maybe engage with the World Bank, um, other institutions such as the Egmont Group um, and the International Monetary Fund. Um, I know, for example, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime yeah. has informal networks to facilitate um, international cooperation and asset recovery. Um, also, we would also need to engage perhaps with Interpol mm. um, to assist with investigations and building capacity of our law enforcement agencies. Um, so there's there are lots of resources out there but it's a matter of sitting down and mm. planning um, and as the report said strategic intervention is, is mm. needed so um so those would be my immediate points that i would say yeah oh, just curious on average how long does it take to prosecute a, a a money laundering a financial crimes case i know it's obviously com complex dependent right but is there an average of sorts Yes, it is quite complex. It depends whether um, it's based in the country. Um, currently, there are very few cases that we can even say uh, timeframes mm. or we can stipulate timeframes for. Um, but I would say two to three years would be the expected time wow. currently. 
And then if you're talking about an international case, then um, you have um, other processes involved, such as mutual legal assistance requests, which are diplomatic processes that could prolong the case even mm. further. And if um, we're talking about extraditions, uh, the individual could go to court to um, challenge that extradition request, and then it could perpetually go on for years. I know in cases in cases like Kenya, people um, anticipate that a case can take 20 years, for example, My people goodness. in high positions who um, are involved in illicit uh, financial transactions. They actually go in knowing that this judicial system will take 20 years and they, 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 they do it knowing that um, by the time it gets anywhere, they will have retired, they would have died, but they would have benefited from those proceeds. Mm. So um, it's the picture is not looking good at all. Mm. Give us a call, 086-000-2032. Before I go to the lines, Titus in Bushpark, Rich, I'm going to come to you very shortly. Kaya, you already gave the minister and the president, Simone Kungobele, free and unsolicited, very expletive advice. But if you could speak to the president, three things that needs to be done immediately, what would those be? <laughs> I don't know if it's three things. Um, so, so I would imagine that, obviously, the fact that we're here now requires the state at large to figure out how to ensure that by the time we get evaluated again we do pass the test and in order for us to get them you have to not only deal with the question of what has been raised by the fatf in its report based on its 2019 assessment but also the question of what does the future of the world of finance look like because if we only put the rules to correct what currently exists and we do not preempt what the next uh, risk factors are going to be it simply means you're going to be going in and out of the grade list, which is not useful at all. Mm -hmm. So the most important thing is to obviously then figure out what are these coordination protocols that need to be established in order for us to ensure that whatever work some of these regulatory agencies are already doing is not compromised by the fact that law enforcement does not follow up. So I think strengthening the law enforcement um, aspect of it is going to be a key aspect mm -hmm. of what needs to happen next. And also the fact that from the 67 red flags that you originally had, we're down to single digits, means that some work has been done. Mm -hmm. But also you do not want that work to be undermined by the ineffectiveness or the inability of the bureaucrats within the system to actually then implement those laws. So I think it will be very important to ensure that you strengthen the system so that you are in a much better position to not only deal with the crimes as they currently occur, but also as they develop and as they evolve. To, to one of the arguments that you raised on Wednesday night after a glass of wine, do we have enough smart people? Oh, the state, the country has got enough smart people. Whether those smart people then get put into positions of influence and positions of authority seems to be the great dilemma here. Because if you listen to some of the arguments that get put forward by the National Prosecutions Agency, for example, in relation to why it's taken so long to deal with the Steinhoff case, they simply do not have the resources internally. The resources that you need to deal with these type of crimes are not necessarily, um, you know, traditional policemen or people who've gone through, um, you know, prosecutions agencies. There has to be an element of understanding the sophistication of the banking system, the sophistication of financial transactions that occur across the globe. And I would imagine that that is not a particularly strong feature of the National yeah. Prosecutions Agency in its current configuration. Yeah. 
So whether they should then put together a unit that still deals specifically with white-collar crimes of this nature, with international cross-border transaction crimes of this nature, in collaboration with the SARS units that already deal with the questions of how citizens transact across the borders, that may be a recommendation that essentially emerges from here. Otherwise, the NPA is going to have to try and figure out how to understand what is a very complex minefield in light of very competing priorities um, given the scale of the work that they have to do across the criminal uh, issues that they have to deal with. So more money for the NPA? In South Africa, more money does not translate to greater uh, efficiencies, unfortunately. It's more money directed in the right um, resources yeah. and in the right capacity building because you don't just want to employ 10 more people. You want to employ 10 more fit for purpose resources, whatever that means, whether it's mm. investment in technology or technological resources or investment in human capital, you have to be very clear about why you're putting more money, but to simply allocate a, a greater budget without changing the underlying structures and improving the capacity and the systems, it won't get you anywhere. Yeah. Hi, Oliver. One must understand when you talk about the down, the gray listing of South Africa, how it works. You see, the Western hegemony, the Western powers have total control of the world economy. If you don't toe the line, like South Africa didn't support them in a UN resolution, so you are downgraded. So this is how they manipulate the currency, the rand, they manipulate the rating because they are doing the you know, rating. So end of the day, you just got to be a slave to the West, otherwise you pay a price. So this is the price that South Africa has to pay by not putting the line off the West. Let's go to the lines. Titus in Bushbuck Ridge. Titus, good morning. Oliver, good day. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. So go ahead. Yeah, right. Uh, mine is much more of um, uh, a comment than anything else. Yeah. Um, but also, also, also a question. Maybe I should start with that. They, I don't know if you remember this one. Nigeria, they had... They give a very hefty fine to NTN for um, not having not all their um, subscribers registered on their network and those kind of things. And now in South Africa, you have a lot of um, people who think that um, um, you just give them the tax rank. They're already record. You don't know who who actually is registered to those those numbers. I, and I wonder if that is not also adding to the problems in terms of we don't know who's talking to who, who is transferring transferring money to who, those kind of things. I don't know if that also you mm. know um, adds to the problems that we have. Another thing is that in the community, it's a very strong feeling that um, these puzzle shops, um, a whole lot of them, people don't seem to be actually doing proper banking. Um, we don't know how they do it, but. The strong feeling that these people are not really in the system, and we don't know where the money is going. So we're just supporting people that we don't mm. are not really contributing to the economy, or we don't know where the money they're taking to. Mm. Um, mm. Maybe they're they're also taking to the mattress and the sofas. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> Titus, thank you so much for your call. Really, really do appreciate it. Uh, that's Titus yeah. out uh, in Bushbuck Ridge. Uh, can I ask this at 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 a local level, at a domestic level, all the way to? Does this monitoring include corruption? Just local, just everyday local, pure South African, as homebred as it gets, level of corruption, or does it have to involve money laundering specifically? Um, 
corruption is definitely part and parcel of this money laundering uh, framework. So as I had um, described that your corruption would be what they call a predicate crime. So that would be the source of the illicit funds. And then the money laundering process would then be the integrating of those funds into the legitimate financial system. Um, so it's, it's, it's all tied together. It's all under the same umbrella. So you can't really uh, separate corruption from money laundering because they usually go together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also wanted to respond to your last uh, listener's comment yeah. about what happens to the money in the informal sector. Um, so we have something that is called hawala, where uh, a, a trader, for example, um, in South Africa, would ask uh, a relative, for example, in another country or in another location in the country to make a payment on his behalf in that country or in that jurisdiction. And then um, there's no physical transfer of money, but transactions do happen. So that is the other very uh, big situation yeah. that we currently face in the African context and within the not so developed world context so, so what does basically what yeah what does that look like i i call a relative in say zimbabwe and i say hey man um i bought something from someone um i need to pay them do you mind giving them 300 dollars in cash and when i come to zimbabwe in a month or two i'll reimburse you in cash physically um and yes. that sort of transaction Yes, or if he, if the next time your cousin needs something in South Africa, then he would say, oh, remember that $300, would you please pay for my groceries? Ah, okay. So there's no transfer yeah. of cash, but there's an exchange of value. Yes. My goodness. Nicholas in Gabeja, good morning. Morning, morning, Oliver. That's the name of my son, 35 years old, named after Oliver Tambor. So was I, so was I. But go ahead, what's yeah, your comment? I thought so, sir. Um, just a quick one. Uh, earlier, you received a call from uh, a comrade who'd, um, who'd, who'd been trained up in, in China, uh, a, a lady. Um, she spoke of the president's advisors, and, and you said, no, 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 check it out. They're, they're not white. You can check on the website. Well, they're not they're all definitely... white. Some of them are white. They're not all white. Yeah. So I have, I have some um, first-hand anecdotal evidence going back to 2006. Um, <laughs> Um, regarding, uh, and I'll mention the name, uh, Fever Tree Consulting, which may or may not be a uh, extension of the CIA, and I'm, I'm by no means a, a, um, a, a crazy Christian <laughs> or a crazy Buddhist or, mm. uh, or any kind of um, uh, conspiracy theorist, but uh, President Ramaphosa was extremely involved, along with uh, Rolf Mayer, um, in, uh, in these consulting companies which operated at a very high level um, and in fact when you were talking to people at uh, minerals and energy just prior to the transition between uh, Tabo Mbeki and uh, and um, President Zuma ex-President Zuma um, you had to speak to um, Scandinavian American British Scottish Irish consultants uh, and you'd speak directly to them and they would whisper to their um, South African ministerial um, colleagues. It was extremely disturbing. The 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 level of should we say interference um, from let's just colloquially call them the European powers, American powers, 
Anglo-American Pies if you wish was just palpable uh, and that's back in 2006 2007 um, uh, minerals and energy um, and, uh, and and GCIS um, I, so, I, I need you to crystallize what you're saying I'm not I'm not able to locate the coordinates of your point okay um, the point I was making was that um, your your uh, slight clash with with the um, with the caller earlier this morning um, uh, I would wish to just say that this there is far more external control um, than we'd like to admit um, that is to say the finances of the country uh, are bullied uh, and this so, so, so how does this how does this contribute to our gray listing Nicholas oh we seem to have lost Nicholas there yeah we lost Nicholas there entirely I'm a little I'm, yeah I'm not I'm not too sure I'm able to make sense of of Nicholas's point there um, it's, it, he didn't quite crystallize that too clearly for us. But let's have a listen at this WhatsApp voice note. Good morning, Oliver. While I understand the need to protect people from terrorism, I think this is one of those ways that Africa will always have an, uh, the short end of the stick. It's just like the International Criminal Court where it uh, concentrates on Africa. You've got America that um, funded the Taliban with 80 billion worth of equipment, some which they say they destroyed, but it has been fixed and is working. They've armed the Taliban to the tooth. You don't hear anybody talking about this issue, why America has not yet been uh, grey-listed because of this. You look at American debt, uh, you don't get the IMF advising them on what to do, but they've got the worst debt anywhere in the world that you can get. So I just feel some of these things... While they are noble, we really need to fight against them because it's, it's just counterproductive for for South Africa to just take this line down. Thank you, Nigeria. That's an interesting point, Kai, and I want you to respond to it. When when we got relegated to near chunk status by some of the ratings agencies, Fitch, Moody's, SNP, some of the political response coming out of certain quarters in Lutulia House was like, "Yeah, hey, these are imperial organizations. We have no business. We have no business." giving us credit ratings when they don't treat us fairly compared to global powers such as the United States. That, that comment, while sincere and potentially comes from a really good place, this, this voice note we just listened to, seems to be going towards the direction of that sort of political response, saying, ah, well, let's, let's get rid of the West and uh, they shouldn't be monitoring and evaluating and grading us uh, when they are not treating us fairly because they are very anti-black imperialist organizations, anti-African. Is that a fair reading? Well, it is a fair conversation when citizens have it. It's not a, a particularly useful one and politicians have it because they obviously are reacting to the fact that these reports seem to be a reflection on their political custody um, or custodianship of the country's resources. The important thing that we all must make peace with is the fact that all these organizations are actually still voluntary. So no one compels South Africa to get a credit rating. No one compels South Africa to join these particular organizations. How? Oh, Kaya, your line just... Ever, because South Africa has decided that it wants to participate in international capital markets. Is it better now? Yeah. Hello? Yes, yes. Go yes. Ahead. So because you've decided that you want to participate in international capital markets and these are the rules of engagement, you unfortunately then have to try and play within the rules themselves. But in instances when 
you feel that you know maybe credit rating agencies are biased against you then this is a matter that should be raised beyond the ambit of politicians trying to manipulate the outcomes of a report so unfortunately we only have these conversations once we received an address report rather than someone substantively mm. and cogently showing us the differences in how they treat particular countries and of course the fact that the bias is always implicit then is something that's always been a, a, a bit, bit been known but instances of how to fix it and how to address it have been a bit more elusive yeah Hi Oliver, I'm glad that you got Kaya there uh, and our other guests, uh, brilliant minds. Uh, but getting back to uh, accountability and uh, money laundering, etc. Uh, I'm just asking: Is uh, the per- the people tasked with prosecuting these cases uh, not at risk? Because I mean, uh, the uh, defendants know uh, where they live and who they are, so you know. I think they got to thread carefully as well. Thank you, Anonymous. Anonymous, that's a really, really interesting point. Oluetu, do you feel safe? Do your colleagues feel safe? Um, yes, I feel very safe. Um, but I don't think there really is a major safety concern. Um, I mean, there have been incidents where organized crime groups are involved, yeah, um, like gang-related uh, even in certain corrupt activities in government where people have been targeted. Um, but I wouldn't say that the prosecutor is in grave danger because they are just following the letter of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, perhaps if you're talking about defense attorneys and those sort of people, they would need to be a little bit more vigilant, um, but not to say the prosecution or law enforcement are in any danger that I'm aware of. Yeah. Uh, Kaya, what's beyond a grey list? Blacklisting? Do do countries typically come back from that? So there are two countries on the grey list from what I, uh, on the blacklist from what I recall, and that is Iran and uh, North Korea. And obviously, you can figure out why those two countries are on the blacklist. So a blacklist does indeed exist. And once you obviously get blacklisted, it's when your institutions have completely collapsed and you're essentially a criminal enterprise according to the assessment criteria of the FATF. So in instances where you've got a very, um, you know, corrupt banking system, for example, and you've got a very corrupt political establishment, you would then essentially be regarded as a country where absolutely nobody should be sending any single uh, uh, you know, unit of currency because it just gets lost in the system. So while the blacklist exists, it's very difficult for anyone to get in them. And the countries that are there are there simply because they either refuse to share the type of information that enables the FATF to know what's going on. And that's how they've ended up there. South Africa is not at risk of moving to the blacklist yet. I, I can't imagine that North Korea voluntarily subscribed to the FATF of evaluation. Surprisingly, they did. So we don't know why they decided to be a member of this particular organization. But yeah, they have been blacklisted. Wow, my goodness. Final final theme I want to explore here. And, and, and this is a difficult one because it enters the terrain of speculation. Does the political will exist collectively to deal with this? And I'm asking this given that we, we've, we've known this was coming. And we could have prevented it, or, albeit, Kaya, you said much progress has been made. We went from 67 or 60-plus-odd 60 uh, vulnerabilities on the checklist down to single digits, meaning that progress has been made, right? But holistically, does the political will exist? Is this the type of thing that will make the ruling party vulnerable at the at the polls? No, the political will isn't there, and the proof 
of that is the fact that National Treasury spent the better part of the past two years trying to convince members of parliament to pass the laws that would enable us to escape the, black, the, the, the gray list. The process of getting that, those bills to be passed was so completely lethargic. In fact, we ended up with an extraordinary series of events at the end of last year where National Treasury had to package five bills into one simply because that was the closest they could get to convincing the members of parliament to actually do their job. So the fact that they put these five bills into one was then criticized by other political parties as a process that had clearly been rushed um, only to try and avert a grade listing. It hadn't gone through the normal process of very detailed public consultation and all of those back and forth exercises. So the fact that they only passed this under duress at the end of last year, having known for the better part of two years that it needed to be passed, yeah. means they either do not understand what on earth we're dealing with or they're quite simply aren't interested in dealing with it. Kaya Setole, thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it this morning. All the way to Majola, thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it. It's 11 o'clock. Kamukhaletaleri has your news.